This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Thank you, everybody, for uh, inviting me to come talk about something that uh, we all know has uh, uh, blessed and plagued our institution for many years. And I want to talk a little bit about the journey, how we got to where we are, why are we doing this, and, and, and uh, what is the ultimate goal. And, and I want to preface it by saying that what we're doing is really heresy. It's really challenging the dogma. We shouldn't be doing any of this stuff. And it's only because of people like you that we're able to do it. If, if it weren't for the great nursing care these patients get, there is no way that we could be doing these types of surgeries. And I think the families appreciate that. They know that I get emails all the time from families who've undergone this procedure, patients who are thinking about undergoing the procedure, coming from all over the world saying, you know, our, our, our child has a single ventricle, but has a ventricle there that we might be able to recruit. Can you help us? And so who do we choose for this type of strategy, and how, how do we select these patients? Well, it's really the patients with a borderline left heart that we're saying, well, you've got a single ventricle, but you might be able to go to a two ventricle. And so I want to talk a little bit about what that uh, anatomy means, and then kind of what our current strategies are, and then, and then go from there. Many of you know what uh, hypoplastic left heart syndrome is, basically a small left heart. Uh, in the most extreme forms, you'll have actually mitral atresia and aortic atresia. We can't do anything for that. You need to have an aortic and a mitral valve in order to be able to recruit a left ventricle. So we start with that definition of borderline left ventricle means you've got an aortic and a mitral valve that are patent, and you have a left ventricle that has some structure to it. And there's really a spectrum of disease, different diagnoses, different sizes. Hypoplastic left heart syndrome is the probably the biggest variant that we see, but you can also have unbalanced AV canal defects with small uh, left-sided structures as seen here. Many of these patients have coarctation of the aorta, and many of them have aortic valve stenosis. So we have to address those as a part of this spectrum. I also want to mention, although we don't emphasize it as much, is that we're doing the same thing for the right side of the heart, too. So if you have a small right heart, patients still go down a single ventricle pathway, but we're making attempts to try to recruit the, the right heart in a very similar fashion. And then there are other variants. There are double outlet right ventricles with small mitral valve, straddling AV valves, L-loop transposition, all kinds of anatomies for which in most institutions throughout this country and throughout the world, the patient would get a single ventricle repair. And the question is, if we do a biventricular repair, do they have a better outcome than if they have a single ventricle repair? We think that they will. It's been a journey to try to get there. So this is, the, this is the deal. You have a child with borderline left heart structures, you have a couple of options. And the, those options are single ventricle palliation. You can try to go for broke and do an initial biventricular repair and say, okay, you've got a mitral valve, that's okay. You've got an aortic valve, that's okay. You've got coarctation of the aorta, small left ventricle, let's give it a go. 
you can do a transplantation. Just say, okay, you know, from the very get-go, we don't, we don't believe in single ventricle palliation. Some countries, entire countries, don't offer single ventricle palliation. And so for them, you know, it's either interventional biventricular repair or transplantation. Or, and, and you know, we're, we're not the kind to do this often, but comfort care. And to say, you know what, why don't you enjoy um, time with your child? Let's not keep them in the hospital and, and, and so send children home. And then finally, what I'm going to talk about today, which is the stage left ventricular recruitment. So, you know, you guys have spent the entire day talking about single ventricle palliation, and I'm not going to really go over this in extreme detail since you know most of this. Uh, the first stage is obviously you have to hook up the aorta and the pulmonary artery. There's about a 10% mortality associated with the stage one uh, palliation. Uh, but this has been significantly impacted by our home monitoring program. Again, something that's a, a huge uh, nurse practitioner nursing in, initiative that has revolutionized the way we do things. And, it, and it's an example of how important the role is of that, of that care at the bedside, of that minute-to-minute -minute care, as opposed to my sort of, uh, you know, impulsive surgical treatment. It, it, that, that changes some things, but it, unless you can follow that up with, with great care afterwards, it doesn't, it doesn't come together. Second stage operation, typically done four to six months of age, uh, and, and you guys know finally the Fontan procedure, culminating the Fontan procedure. So what are the outcomes of single ventricle palliation? Why have we started to think of all other alternatives? Well, you know, 10 20% mortality following the stage one, not so bad. Um, and then you think about the Glenn, 95 plus percent survival, the Fontan, 90, 95 percent plus survival, and people start to say, well, why are you looking at this? But if you actually follow an entire cohort from very beginning to how they're doing as adults, it's a very different story. What we see are these little snapshots, but what we don't see is the entire continuum. But when you look at the continuum, it's a little more sobering. Ten-year survivals of anywhere between 50 to 70 percent. Uh, and a fair number of them requiring cardiac transplantation uh, at, a, at a later time point. We do see some of the morbidity. Many of you have seen and, and struggled with these patients. The protein-losing enteropathy, uh, the plastic bronchitis, horrible uh, comorbidities to have. And once you have them, there's, there's no treating them properly. There's no way to really adequately manage these. By the way, even a transplant doesn't necessarily effectively treat this. So once you get these two, it's kind of the, it, that's it. You, you, you got them for, for life for the most part. And you can palliate them, but, but it's, not, it's not perfect. Um, arrhythmias, that's about all I'll, I'll say about that. Um, and, uh, and, and further development of, of valvular insufficiency. Thrombosis is a huge problem in these, patient, in these patients long term. So, you know, really, when you start to have one or two patients come back with these complications and you really have no options for them, you start to say, well, really, could we have done better? And instead of looking at that 95% survival rate after the Fontan, 95-plus after the Glenn, you start to ask yourself, are we really kind of putting ourselves down a pathway that, that, that is ideal? Well, once you get into trouble, what can you do? Ventricular assist devices have been used for biventricular patients, but in the single ventricle population, uh, it's rarely uh, been successful. And again, a lot of that is because 
the die has been cast. The liver is dysfunctional. You've got protein-losing enteropathy. If you get to the point where you need a VAD, that's because you're really sick, and many of those illnesses are irreversible. There are numerous devices, but there's a problem with a lot of these devices in that many of these devices don't take care of the right-sided circulation. Remember, you have passive drainage of blood coming from the lower body and the upper body going directly into the lungs. And you can put a device in the, in the ventricle going to the aorta, but unless you find a way to energize the pulmonary circuit, you haven't really done anything. And there really aren't any great devices at this point to manage that. A lot of people are working on it. Hopefully, if that improves, and there are some really neat devices coming through, uh, centrifugal pumps that you can put in the Fontan circuit, but let's think about it. If you put something in the Fontan circuit and you dry flow up the Fontan, where is it going to go? Up to the head. So you have to have another pump up there that pushes it down. So you start to talk about some really complex uh, uh, footwork here. Another big problem is really the size of pumps. There aren't very many manufacturers interested in pediatrics. It's just not enough big of a market for them. And so uh, the development of these devices is, is poor. We end up using the smaller adult devices, and, and it's, it's, it's really not, not great. We still haven't dealt with the issue of coagulation in, in bad patients, another major issue that they have. So at the end of the day, we're still lacking in, in, this, uh, in this category, and, and these are some of the outcomes. If you take a patient with, a, say, a cardiomyopathy, two ventricles, and you support them with the VAD, their outcomes are, 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 you know, are reasonable. But once you start to talk about the congenital population, this is majority of these patients are patients with single ventricle physiology. Their survival is much uh, poorer. So this is, uh, you know, when people start to talk about cardiac transplantation and whether that's, you know, that could be a, a reasonable uh, alternative. And yeah, it is. It certainly it certainly helps salvage you know, uh, patients. Um, what, what was really interesting about uh, a study we did a couple of years ago is that if you're a patient, a single ventricle patient who has PLE and has good ventricular function, so that's this population right here. So PLE with good ventricular function did poorer than patients who had depressed ventricular function as the indication for the transplantation. Kind of makes sense, you know, once you get PLE, once you have plastic bronchitis, that's your indication for transplant. Your ventricular function's okay, but it wasn't, it's not a pump problem anymore. It's a problem with the pressures having built up and now end organ dysfunction that we otherwise have not been able to classify. And so this is, this is one of the problems of predicting when to transplant and how well they do after the transplant. So this is where our strategies come in. A lot of places think that it's binary. You got to make the decision single ventricle or biventricular upfront, which is it going to be? And you got to make that decision as a neonate. Very tough call. There are some risk factors that can help you determine whether a biventricular repair would succeed or not. People have been working on these tools for years. We had one of our own, I think uh, um, it's called the Road Score. Uh, Steve Cohen and all, they sort of put together a biventricular group and they said, wow, this plus this times this plus this plus this equals success. And that worked okay, but it still misses a large swath of the population. Same thing, the, 
Congenital Heart Surgeon Society came up with a calculator to try to say, okay, we look at your aortic arch, aortic arch size, we look at your ventricular size, add you know EFE in there, make a score. It works okay, but no, not perfect. The observation that was made, oh, probably 10 years ago, is that children do have growth potential. We traditionally have been taught that the heart doesn't add muscle anymore. Once you're born with a certain number of myocardial cells, that's what you've got for life. But this is an interesting study. So uh, Doff uh, looked at a cohort of patients who had critical aortic stenosis and balloon dilated aortic valve. And we looked at what happens to the left ventricular volumes over time. So on this axis here is the left ventricular end diastolic volume z-score. They all start off really small ventricles, but after you balloon dilate them, their ventricles do increase in size to the point that they essentially normalize. It's an interesting result. Now, now that we know more about how the heart works, we understand that there probably is some native myocardial regeneration potential. And so, can we somehow harness this? So this is where the idea of the staged left ventricular recruitment came in. You got a child who's on the borderline. Take that 10% upfront mortality risk. Do the stage one palliation. Get out of that initial neonatal time frame. But then, use maneuvers over the next several years to, manip to manipulate and rehabilitate the left ventricle. And if you get enough growth, if you get that left ventricle to respond, and what, what is response is going to be the key point here. If you can get it to respond, then go to a subsequent biventricular conversion. Okay? So this is the staged left ventricular recruitment SLVR uh, sort of strategy as it's, uh, as it's been dubbed. So what is the main concept? If you want the ventricle to grow, you've got to have flow. And that's the problem in single ventricle patients is that there's no flow going through that left ventricle. So there's no stimulus for growth at all. So what do we do? We remove EFE, which limits the opening or the relaxation and contraction of the ventricle. And this is what EFE looks like. It's a very cartilaginous material uh, that, uh, that um, it can be up to three to four millimeters thick and essentially limits excursion of, of, that, of that ventricle. We, uh, we might um, uh, repair the uh, aortic and mitral valves to allow flow to go in and out of the ventricle, restrict the atrial septal defect, because if you have a wide open atrial septal defect, all of the blood that comes back from the lungs is going into the right ventricle. We want to force it to go into that left ventricle where it's not going to want to go because of the resistance of the mitral valve, the EFE, the myocardium, the aortic valve, et cetera, et cetera. You got to nudge it a little bit. But this nudging is where the heresy part comes in. This is where we were told, you know, wait a second. You're restricting the atrial septum. Let me get this right. Most single ventricle patients, the dogma is you have to make that atrial septal defect wide open. Because if you don't, you get pulmonary, uh, pulmonary venous hypertension, backs up into the lungs, bad for the Fontan physiology, bad for the single ventricle physiology. And that's true. And this is where we were a little bit playing with fire. And most of the, at least the surgical community, um, was, uh, was, was really uh, aghast at what we, were, what we were trying to do. And they still are. But I'm going to talk a little bit about how we, how we tried to, to do this uh, uh, safely. 
But again, unless you can promote some blood flow going into that left ventricle, it is not going to grow. And I'll show you some data to suggest that. So um, this is the uh, this 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 was the um, concept of the ASD restricting uh, restriction leading to promoting blood flow into the uh, into the left ventricle. And so uh, we've now uh, done this recruitment process in you know approximately uh, uh, ninety to hundred patients. And how do they what do they, how do they do over time? So this is all comers that we've said, okay, I think there's a chance. There's a chance we can do something for you. Right now, about uh, two-thirds of them are still in single ventricle uh, circulation. Some of them are terminally so, so in that position that is that they're, they're going to stay as single ventricle patients. Some patients have, uh, have been you know, taken down that pathway and are demonstrating growth and so may convert to a biventricular conversion, but at this point are still single ventricle. The beauty of this is that you don't have to commit. You can stay as a single ventricle, do a few things, see how the ventricle does. If the ventricle gets bigger, now you can convert. If you're not ready, stay as a single ventricle. Don't have to commit until you know. So it takes away that, that immediacy of that neonatal period, that, oh my God, which way am I going to go, and allows you to do this. Now, we've converted about a third of these patients. Um, 35 patients have undergone conversion from this uh, initial uh, cohort. It's actually higher now. We've had about 50 patients, but of the patients that that you know I'm including in this analysis here, um, uh, there are 35 conversion patients. But of those, there uh, were seven patients, about 20%, who went on to some sort of adverse outcome: death, transplant, or VAD after the biventricular conversion, who didn't do so hot. And this is where the difficulty arises. How do we reduce this 20% rate after the bi conversion? How do we try to predict the outcomes and thereby select the patient's right to say, okay, you've responded or you haven't. It's not all about size at the end of the day. So this is what it looks like. If you take a child who has a borderline left heart and you say, well, I'm going to do a traditional stage one palliation, open up the atrial septum, this is what happens to the left ventricle over time. It basically atrophies, it withers away. It's common knowledge. We knew that would happen. But at this point, once you get beyond you know, the, the gland and the fontan, there's not much you're going to do for this ventricle. On the other hand, if you take the approach of left ventricular rehabilitation, then you actually see ventricular volumes increase. And, and so this is, this is at least as, as far as the volume of the ventricle goes, if you look at that as your surrogate, you can demonstrate that there's some improvement. And the same thing, by the way, goes for the aortic valve, the mitral valve, and, uh, and, and you know, the uh, long axis dimension of the, of the ventricle. All aspects of size of the ventricle increase. Okay, that's a start. We want the size to be good, but it's not the whole key. It's not, it's not everything. It doesn't make a good biventricular conversion necessarily. Another aspect that I mentioned earlier that we were able to demonstrate early on is the fact that if you do not restrict the atrial septum, if you don't go against the grain, you're not going to get anywhere. So here, when we looked at this cohort of patients that had a left ventricular recruitment, so 
we did mitral valve work, aortic valve work, removed EFE, but we said, you know, we're not going to restrict the atrial septum because I'm a wimp. Versus uh, the patients who did have ASD restriction, you compare those two populations, the patients who had an ASD restriction had clearly uh, a growth compared to the patients who didn't. So this told us that unless you promote flow through the left side of the heart, you're not going to get the growth that you need. So nowadays, you're going to see all of our patients come through who are having this recruitment procedure will have restriction of the atrial septal defect. So what's happened to their cardiac output over time? Now, this is very dirty data. I don't want to, don't want to emphasize this too much. But the question is, if you don't get to a biventricular repair, does having a recruited left ventricle help? So here we look at a group of patients who just had a traditional stage one uh, palliation, the group that I showed earlier where there were the two, um, DV the, the two bars of the traditional single ventricle and then the recruited patients. This is the traditional stage one patients who went on to single ventricle. This is the group of patients who had uh, left ventricular recruitment, but not a biventricular conversion. So there's still a single ventricle. And when we looked at their cardiac index, and the cath lab prior to their Fontan procedure, prior to their biventricular conversion, but still as a single ventricle, it turns out that uh, their um, cardiac index is a little bit more. And it was significant. But the problem here is that, you know, you're really comparing a little bit apples to oranges because, you know, your loading conditions are a little bit different. So, you know, this is a little bit suspect. But I want to raise it as, a, as, as an idea that even if you don't get the holy grail of biventricular conversion, does having a vent left ventricle that contributes to the circulation make a child a better single ventricle patient? Can you have a better Fontan if you have a contributing left ventricle? So I leave that as a question because I don't have that answer yet, but that's something that we're going to be looking at moving forward. And it's going to boil down to do they have a better quality of life? Do they have a better longevity? Uh, do they have less risk, risk long term? So we can't answer that quite yet. Um, I mentioned earlier that now 53, about 53 uh, patients have undergone uh, biventricular conversion following a set of uh, recruitment maneuvers. Um, there's still about a 5 to 10% mortality, um, and uh, transplantation uh, has been uh, necessary in some of these patients. The biggest issue is diastolic dysfunction, and you'll see that uh, tossed around a lot, and we'll go over that in just a little bit. But a lot of these patients will have ongoing problems with relaxation. Um, and, and that uh, is something that leads to pulmonary hypertension over time. They often have recurrent valve repairs. About 25% of them need uh, recurrent valve repairs uh, to manage their, uh, manage their valvular disease. And, and one of the things that we've realized as a part of this recruitment process is the, is the deficit in technology that we have. We have very few options for valve replacement in children. And, uh, and valve repair, whereas it may work for a period of time, um, just when you want it to work its best, the valve repair may fail. And that leads to uh, frequent reoperations. So this is, when, uh, this is where uh, you know, some of our uh, research interest in the Melody valve uh, has come into play. And we're also working on the development of other types of pediatric valves in the lab. And I, I was just actually this past week, I was at Cryolife, the people who make homographs, and trying to get them to make a pediatric valve that we can use 
that's very similar to the melody valve, except smaller and meant really for kids, and, and uses um, uh, actually donor human femoral venous valves. This is a, a human uh, femoral vein. It actually has a valve in it, and it's a, it's a nice small valve. This is about a 10 millimeter valve. And I thought, boy, wouldn't that be nice to have like a 10, 12 millimeter valve that, that we can use for, for some of these little kids, um, you know, who have really tough uh, valves. So a technology deficit that we're trying to meet, um, you know, in, in the face of uh, corporate disinterest. So as I mentioned earlier, you can get the valves to be working well. You can do it, all the conversion. But at the end of the day, diastolic dysfunction is a major problem. So when we look at all these biventricular conversion patients, and many of, you, many of you have taken care of seeing them, seeing them come back, and you know, see us consternate over this problem. And the problem is many of them still have an elevated end diastolic pressure. Their ventricles, even though they're recruited, is just not perfect. And because of that, they end up with, uh, with uh, RV pressures that are elevated. So the right ventricular pressure can be um, uh, less than, it was only, is less than half systemic in only about 40% uh, of these patients. And we're trying to improve upon that by improving upon this, left atrial hypertension. Trying to understand what will allow us to improve the relaxation characteristics of the ventricle after this type of a repair. And so this is where uh, we've, we've started to look a little bit um, into the, to the world of the uh, scientific American and, uh, and uh, beyond. Uh, can we use some form of stem cell therapy to help as an adjunctive therapy? And, uh, and so what, uh, what we've started to do now, we're working with a, with a, with a company that um, has uh, stem cells that are using in an adult phase three trial that we're going to hopefully start to implement in this group of patients where we can inject stem cells directly into the heart muscle uh, directly and, and, and try to get it to recruit um, more muscle and hopefully better functioning muscle. So you'll, you'll be hearing some about this. A lot of uh, you, may, uh, you may find um, uh, parents and families coming to you and asking about this because it's, it's really something quite novel and it's probably going to be hitting the media uh, uh, relatively soon since we've started to, to um, uh, finalize our uh, protocol for, for getting this study up and going. So um, stay tuned. And, uh, and, and we're also looking at some other cell types and sources. Um, in the lab, uh, we're working on using a child's uh, placenta, uh, I'm sorry, the, the placenta at the time of delivery for a child with hypoplastic left heart to get stem cells that can be then subsequently used for that child at a later time point. So if the stem cell therapy works, you might find that a, a, just like people use cord blood uh, uh, storage, that we might have a, a process of storing placental uh, cells and using them subsequently uh, for therapy. And, uh, and so these are, uh, these are some of the avenues that we're looking to try to, to rectify the situation. So I, just, I wanted to give you that, uh, that uh, sort of overview of what we're doing. I'm sure many of you are connected and hear a lot from these families that, that are very engaged, and, and I, I, I don't want to you know, de-emphasize the importance of, uh, of the family involvement. There are a lot of family advocacy groups, Facebook pages, all the stuff surrounding this effort. Uh, so many of you will, um, will, will be affected by that, impacted upon by that, and, 
And so have, making sure you have all the information you need to talk to these families will be very important. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.